This program is not about suicide. If you or someone you know needs immediate assistance with suicidal ideation or depression, please contact your local 24-7 crisis support service. If you're in Australia, try Lifeline on 13 11 14, Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800 or the other services listed on our website at wheelercentercom slash betteroffdead. There is no death. There's only me, me, me who's dying. And I've decided that um, with the experience I've had in my life that the only way that I can uh, manage my own death is to um, become quite active and um, take um, things into my own hand and not um, have a stranger come into my life in the last 24 to 48 hours dictating what I should and shouldn't be doing as far as my own death is concerned. Ray Godbold is a palliative care nurse faced with terminal cancer, but he doesn't want to die in palliative care. Ray knows what some doctors prefer not to admit, that even in palliative care, not everything can be taken care of, that a patient's choices about how they die are very limited and that sometimes their dying involves a wildness no one can predict. What Ray doesn't know is that his own death will turn out to be everything he was hoping that he and his family would be spared. The fear of a bad death. Let's not make bad laws. And you will go to sleep. Right. Denying them another option. This leaves me no choice. A perfect of eugenic impulse. evaluation of We just don't talk about it. Against the invasion of we death. We play the game. I felt judged. It was over. People want to know. I know they can't control the me. The police are obliged to charge me. Shy away. What the hell can you do? Murder, manslaughter. Denying them another option. Don't do this lightly. My name's Andrew Denton, you're listening to Better Off Dead, and this is the story of Velvet Ray. My name's uh, Ray Godbold, and I get called Raymond when I'm in trouble. I'm 59 <laughs> years of age, I'm turned 60 next January. I've been a registered nurse for 34 years, and gradually at the end of my career I graduated towards cancer care and the palliative care fields. Ray earned the nickname Velvet from a patient grateful for his gentle way with the dying. Now Ray is dying too. I was working as the clinical nurse consultant for Darwin City um, in May 2012 when I was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. There had been no symptoms, just a bad bout of indigestion. But there it was, an 8 centimetre tumour that started in Ray's stomach, moved to his esophagus and was still on the move. He pulled the scan up and he said, there it is, it's in your liver already. So once it's spread, you're not an option Mm. for surgery, which is the only curative measure you have. It's late March 2015, and I'm sitting in Ray's backyard in the Victorian seaside town of Inverloch. There's a lovingly tended vegetable garden that backs onto the bush. Birds are everywhere. Ray, a tall man with a dry sense of humour, tells me about how he first met his wife, Robin. It was a very hot day and um, at the end of it um, there was a, a dam there and we all went skinny dipping and I must say I caught my eye then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was that a similar moment for you, Robin? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I, I don't. I think well, you're obligated as, to say yes. Not as vivid as Ray's memory, but yes, yes definitely. Uh, they've been together for 33 years. Robin too is a nurse, has been since she was 17. I wonder if it's a good thing to know so much about what they're facing. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. it's, it, from Ray's perspective, it's given him this sort of calmness about it all and um, a very intellectual approach, I suppose, to it, which has been really nice. It's helped us a lot. Ray's illness sounds like everybody's nightmare. See, the other problem I have, I'm perfectly healthy. Mm. My lungs, my heart, my liver and my kidneys, even now with this disease process inside me, are all within normal range. So that's just going to um, prolong mm. and to achieve death. That's what you need to happen is for your organs to, mm. you know, to cease. We all know that his prognosis is very poor and that, you know, at some stage he will deteriorate and mm. he's not going to have a long life. But I suppose... 
being a nurse is this is how we're compartmentalising yeah, things yeah. a little mm. bit. You know, we're just trying to make it enjoyable now and not worrying about mm. what's ahead. But we are having the back of our mind, like raise, make plans and all that sort yes. of thing. We've done all that. Despite being a palliative care nurse, Ray's plans do not involve dying in palliative care. When did it become clear to you that you wanted to take control of your own death? Yeah, when I got home and I started thinking about my situation, um, because I've had so much experience with other people dying, and you know, sometimes there is, there is no total control of somebody's death. You know, there's ways and means that palliative care administer um, death and it being slowly with what we call M&Ms, the morphine and midazolam scenario, and that one quarter of all um, people with advanced cancers die from a catastrophic event like um, a huge bleed, a heart attack, pulmonary embolism, pneumonia. Um, and then I realised there's, there's a, quite a margin of error for something to go amiss you know, because we are in the country here and I, mean, I haven't got the full facilities of being mm. in a, a large centre, you know. So I come to the conclusion that I should have a bottle of Nembutal mm. on, on my shelf and see what happens, you know. It would only be used if I was suffering intolerable pain yeah. and that could even be psychological pain. I would never, ever... Um, use it lightly, but having that reassurance that I don't want to be dependent and I don't want my family to have any trauma with my passing because I don't think there needs to be. I think it'd be quite peaceful and comfortable. Was it an easy conversation between the two of you about Nembatal and, and taking that step? Nurses tend to because they see some not-so-nice things happen, but it's... It's different when you're discussing it as this theoretical thing in the future to when it's actually something that, you know, could happen any time. The illegal drug Nembatal will offer Ray a painless death. But in answering the question of how to die, it asks an even bigger one. When to? For me, that would be Mm. the cause of greatest fear, that you would, despite your desire to control Mm. what happens, you may not be able to. The timing of... Of the Nembutal is going to be very important for me because, like I say, I don't know which way the disease process is going to go with having perfectly healthy organs. It strikes me that you have a very difficult choice ahead of you as Mm. to should you take action and when do you take Mm. action. Yeah, uh, exactly. And this is um, the nutshell of the whole argument is, you know, we're forced to make choices right through our lives until we get to the other most important thing in your life is your death, where those choices are, are taken away from you. Mm. And this is what the whole argument is about. Ray calls the Nembatal his back pocket plan. When you get the Nembatal home, mm-hmm. where are you going to put it? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. That's a very good question. I'm not telling you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to come and take it. No, no, you're not. Um, I'm going to keep it at a friend's house. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got one confidant out of my family group. Yeah. That, um, you know, because you, you need to have a, another person outside your group. running around you know? the house, so that's mm. a consideration. Yeah. Why not so, here, though? Just, just in case we get raided early. Ray's decision to source Nembatal means he has to allow for the possibility that the police will want to investigate his use of an illegal drug. So that's the other the other thing that, you know, if I was to administer that medication to myself, that my family wasn't present or had knowledge of that. How is it for you, Robin, that you may not be able to be there to farewell Ray? Um, we'll be there. Mm. I'll, I'll be there. Yeah, I want to support him in his... I, I believe in having a choice. Yeah. I don't want to sit by the bed for days, five days or ten days or... He will get to a stage where he won't be able to swallow, eat or drink. And where where he is in the disease process, when that happens, we, we don't know. No, that's it. In the debate about assisted dying in Australia, Ray Gobbold's voice carries extra weight. A palliative care nurse 
who doesn't want to die in palliative care. I wondered why. Ray, in your line of work as a palliative care nurse, you would have uh, seen people go through this disease. Yeah, I've looked after people with both stomach cancer and esophageal cancer. Mm. If I was to choose the cancer to have, I wouldn't pick this one. Mm. And Ray, you're working in palliative care. Mm. Did you also have a, a strong view about euthanasia? Yeah, yeah, well, I did personally, but it's not something that you would voice um, when you're working in a palliative care field. Mm. You know, I think everybody, um, if we all sat down on a Friday night and had a few drinks together and people were honest on what their um, mm. beliefs were, a lot of them would come out and say, look, that was a shocking death. We sh- should have done something else to help, you mm. know, but you've got um, the legal boundaries, the the medical professional boundaries are all, they've got you surrounded. You can't step out or be seen to step out because the next thing you know, you know, you could be accused of using excess morphine or, but my own personal beliefs was that um, I fully supported it because I've been there when lots of people have had terrible deaths that um, no matter what palliative care people say, the last 24 to 48 hours to somebody's life can be completely unexpected, you know, and there's only, the only options you've got is to make that person unconscious and then you've got the family sitting there looking at this person who's been been in terrible suffering is now unconscious and is going to take hours or days or weeks to die, Mm. you know, so that's not acceptable, I don't think. I asked Ray if there was one particular death that stayed with him. The one that sticks with me the most was a gentleman who had um, existential distress. and he, he was definitely going to suicide. And he had um, a very similar cancer to mine, actually. He came into the hospice and he made it quite clear that he was going to kill himself. So they decided on terminal sedation for him. And his wife sat beside his bed for five days. You know, five days it took him to die each day, having little increments of his morphine and midazolam and his haloperidol, you know, what they could legally give them. You're just waiting for one one of his organs to fail, like him to have a heart attack or Mm. respiratory arrest or something like that. But five days is a long time to watch someone die you know, mm-hmm. and just administer medication. That, that happened in the hospice. And that's where I think voluntary assisted dying would have been of great benefit because I was very close to this um, gentleman's wife, you know, because I'd been supporting them at home for quite a few months. And to see her on a daily basis slowly getting worn down and worn away by sitting there and being a devoted wife, you know, they've been married for 50 years or something like that. It's been and that done to them. that memory of that person, mm. it can be hard to obliterate that. What you remember of that person is that last moment that might be absolutely awful. Mm. Whereas if they have a more controlled death, then the final memory won't be as traumatic. So you won't have to deal with that mm. side of it. No, see, this goes against the palliative care philosophy that you should not hasten death. But that's exactly what the, the whole situation was, mm. hastening his death. Mm. But it took so long for him to die that I think he was a perfect candidate for active euthanasia. The guiding philosophy of palliative care Ray was referring to, to neither hasten nor prolong death, continued to puzzle me. If people die in such unexpected ways... How do doctors know the line to tread between easing somebody's pain but not assisting them to die? Surely, in the end, it comes down to the doctor's personal call. It is, and it's totally unjustifiable, and that's where the doctors and everybody have to turn their back because they they are making that decision on the clinical information, you know, and that's, you know, palliative care does a really good holistic admission to the service, they do. They look into your different, you know, if you go to such and such church and you've got all this, uh, they'll do their best to to get the social worker in. But the last 24 to 48 hours with the terminal sedation, that's where I feel it all goes wrong Um, because you can't. It's up to the person themselves to let you know what is happening and they put them in a position where you can't express yourself and give your decisions because you're unconscious. 
and you're waiting to fade away. What did you mean when you said that's where the doctors have to turn their back? Thou shalt not hasten death, mm-hmm. you know. Well, you're look, looking at a person who's clearly dying and say they've got morphine 30 and midazolam 5 in their syringe driver, the little green book tells them that they can only increase that by such and such an amount, otherwise it becomes out of the clinical picture becomes too much. Presumably that level of treatment, regardless of the guidelines, varies depending on the individual beliefs of the treating doctor. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, There's still doctors that won't give the after-morning pill to different people. And, you know, they've all, the, the, the doctors have all got their own um, beliefs and a lot of them have got religious beliefs mm. and that comes into the clinical area at times. You know, and I've, I've seen it. You, you, you can't trust the man in the white coat. Hmm. Mm. I don't think I want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> It was to be two months before I saw Ray again in early June. He was noticeably thinner, but still, it seemed, very much in control of his life. So, tell me what's happening with your body. Um, well, slowly there's um, signs and symptoms. The cancer metabolism is taking over control of my body. So I feel more of a patient now than um, a person dealing with cancer. I feel that... Um, you know, it's still going to be weeks to months away, I hope, but um, I'm getting to that stage where I'll need more and more medical attention. Is there a sense of being betrayed by your own body? No, there's a sense of being um, cheated or robbed of a few years, you know, because I had no indication at all that I had a GI tract problem I was getting my lower end checked regularly um, and I'm, all this around you is in preparation for me for my retirement, you know, to enjoy my music, to enjoy the books, to enjoy the garden. That's what I've been striving for, that everything could be nice, you know. So, yeah, I do feel robbed of 20 years, I reckon, but that's part of um, understanding that we're only mortal and we're part of the coil that goes around. And our, um, a, fr- a friend of ours, they, they had a little baby girl this morning at the children's hospital. I'm just making way for them. Mm. Yeah. Ray's most recent visit to his GP had confirmed that all his organs were still functioning perfectly. This was not good news. To die, Ray would need one of his organs to fail, which suggested that the path ahead of him was going to be long and painful. I asked if he had a sense of when or even if he might take the Nembatal. Uh, not a clear sense, obviously, you know, like um, my objective is not to use it. But I've got this alien in my stomach and uh, he, he decides the problem is once I cease chemotherapy altogether, how malignant this alien is. So how quickly it wants to spread to my other organs and help me with demise. At what point is it right for you to stop chemotherapy? Once I know that the drugs aren't working any longer and I say, well, we'll stop it now. His chemotherapy is palliative chemotherapy, so it's not curing. It's just about balancing Mm. and making him more comfortable till the disease takes over and Mm. um, it's helping with eating and that sort of thing. Mm. So that's why he's having it. So people think he's having active treatment, but it's not. We live in hope that I don't cough one day and it is bloody. Mm. Mm. Uh, because that means you have to go to hospital. It means that I have to take the Nebutal. Oh, I see. Because um, it's de- it's dependent on me that hopefully having a patent GI tract for it to be effective, you know. Of course, yes. You know, if I haven't got a patent GI tract, the Nebutal becomes... Um, you know, it's not in the game, so I've got to get it into me as quickly as I can. Yeah, then. so the decision-making with this type of cancer that Ray's got is critical if he does want to take it because yeah. if he obstructs, then he won't be able to. So how do you make that decision? Because you can't foretell 
what's going to happen? Can you? No, you just have to go on the symptoms. It's, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I do. Hey, when I physically really can't look after myself. Yeah, yeah. And I become totally dependent yeah. on other people and uh, with no disrespect, you know, mm. I'm starting to look like somebody from Changi anyway, mm. you know, with during the, you know, the war. He does. Um, and, mm. you know, I, I, I'd be mortified if my kids saw me naked, you know, and mm. had to look after me. Mm. That That would... Mortify me. You said earlier that you might not take it, and that, in fact, you—I think you said—I hope I don't take it. Oh, I'm hoping not to. Yes, I'm hoping not to. Yeah, but like I said, I don't know. We've got to assess as we go from stage to stage, and I know that I'm slowly getting pushed along the the line. Ray and Robin's children are Rory, 27, Tara, 32, and Ella, 30. As Ella explained, her parents were pretty well known in the district. They have a big reputation in this community. They did work at one Thaggy hospital for 23 years together. And nurses are very social people. Like, growing up, we'd always have a nurse end-of-year party here, and it was always really fun and wild. The rug would get rolled up at one stage of the night, eh? Yeah. I had a little position in the kitchen where I'd make cocktails for everyone. Dad would get a cocktail book and put it, all the spirits out and I'd make it. It was fun. Yeah. They had lots of fun. All the children support Ray's decision to give himself a choice about how he dies. This is Ella. I absolutely understand where he's coming from and where he wants to be and if he's been exposed to people dying and he knows the way that he wants to go out, and that's absolutely fine with me. I mean, I know Dad's not going to do it too early where he's still got stuff to give us and I trust in his decision because that's what scares me is that time's taken away, but I I trust that he'll do. He knows when the end is the end. Tara gets it too. One of the ladies at my work's mother had the same cancer she was much older but she wouldn't even talk to me about what happened in the last stage she said it's still too distressing for her to be able to talk about you know so um I've got a bit of insight from from that as well and then also you know and we've had that conversation with dad about Mm. these are the scenarios these are the certain things that could happen and it's horrific and we have to live with that as well, like that's the thing. It's you know, it's also not just about him. It's about you know what we have to live with for the next fifty years as well. And I think in some ways it's a protective measure mm-hmm. for us too. It's interesting because I think Dad sees it as oh, thank God I've got this for my family, and we think, well, thank God he's got that for him if he yeah. wants it. Like it's kind of crosses in the air or something. And also he, you know, always emphasises that it's just, you know, him and mum make the decisions together. It's not just about him and he, and what he wants. Like they're kind of on the same page about it and they'll talk about it and, and make sure they're both happy with the scenario. Are you proud of Ray? Of course. Absolutely. Um, you know. We'll be proud forever. Yeah. yeah. When I next saw Ray, only three weeks later, the change in him was shocking. He was painfully thin, moving slowly. Bruises and cuts were clearly evident from multiple falls. Fluid was dripping from his nose and deep lesions were on his fingers, as though the cancer was trying to eat its way out of his body. I've obviously deteriorated quite considerably and had three falls, but I've also um got these wounds that are coming from the inside to the outside of my body, which are causing me great pain. There's splits in the creases of my fingers. It's um, another sign of progression of my um, disease. The first step is I get dyspnea, then I get um, secretions. What's dyspnea? Dyspnea is difficulty breathing. Uh And I've 
I've got S-O-B-O-E, which is shortness of breath on exertion. My voice changes, my nose droops, da-da-da. You know, lots of secretions that are coming out. So your body's just falling yeah, yeah, apart? Yeah, it's falling apart. Yeah, I'm dying, you know, you know, I'm falling apart, really. Wonder, no, I want another cup of tea. Hello. Yeah, I'll have one. I think it caused me any pain. What? Yeah, thank you very much. I'm good. Hello, Helen. Mm. You've got a box good. of your favourite brand, so. Yes, I think. What, do you think I'm, I'm that needy? No, <laughs> no, 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 but they were on special. <laughs> ah, <laughs> See, you I told you about a bargain. <laughs> As I sat with the Gold Bowls at lunch, the good natured conversation and humour was in stark contrast to what we could all see a man almost literally disintegrating in front of our very eyes. After lunch, Ray told me that he'd just reached a critical moment in his treatment. He'd decided to have the intravenous line, or pick delivering his chemotherapy, removed. It was a decision even his oncologist struggled with. He looks after a hell of a lot of people in Gippsland, and he came out to the waiting room and he yelled out, Raimondo, <laughs> you know, which was highly unusual for him, you know. So I went in there and Robin was with me and we had the conversation and he was going to offer me whatever he could, you know, and then I decided, no, we, you know, he turned around and he had tears in his eyes and I was uh, really quite surprised. Yeah. Just what does removal of pick mean? Why, why was he responding to that? Oh, it just it, it means yeah, that all treatment's over. Yeah. That I would be purely in palliative and that would be, um, you know, waiting for me to die. It's a little bit... Scary, really. I find. Oh, well, the, if you know, you the treatment. Venous access to your yeah, body, you know. Yeah, and knowing that that's it, what's going to happen, how quick. Because I remember you saying to me when we first met that once you decide to discontinue mm. chemo, that things most likely cascade pretty quickly. Is, mm. is that yeah, still well, your understanding? You know, if I'm right, it's you know, definitely a top three in malignancy. And then the way that it spread before I was even aware of it. You know, um, but I'm hoping that, you know, I get five or seven days from the chemo mm. and then I get a period of time where I'm a little bit better, a little bit better but that's mm. day by day. Um, yeah. You've got nothing hope. left in the tank anymore, though. You've always had You're a little bit in reserve. Weeks, though, isn't that right? Oh, weeks, yeah. I'm only talking weeks, yeah. Yeah, as you can see, I'm really quite alert psychologically and I'm not ready to hop into bed and say I'm ready to die. Um, so it's looking more and more like Nemitel will be an option for me because, you know, I'm just going to starve to death otherwise and be in pain. I guess that's the other part of the equation for you, how it is for the family. Yeah, that's right. And that's where, you know, I've got to um, have that discussion with them, you know, because it's purely not my decision. It's, um, it's their decision as well. I sort of know that when we get to a certain stage it is going to be discussed, but ultimately it's race. Yeah, it's going to be harder. It's going to be harder than what I imagined. But why do you think it's going to be harder? Because uh, saying goodbye, leaving someone permanently, is is very difficult. I think. Not that I've always, you know, just had my goodbyes, but I've always had that. I know I'll see you in the future. But uh, as you can see, I deeply love my family at home. So um, I'm going to find that a lot more difficult than what I thought. I think the pain, suffering, whatever that, you know, comes to, that, that's what it comes to. But making the decision that I have to permanently leave all this, um, it's going to be more difficult than what I imagined. Despite the pain and the awareness that his time is running out, Ray's focus is on something else, a tropical holiday. Robin's really keen to go to Palm Cove and I'm, I'm keen to take her. Tell me about the Palm Cove plan, Robin. Um, well, 
When we first started going out back in the 80s, <laughs> we, our first holiday, we, we went up to far north Queensland and we camped at Palm Cove and it was beautiful. And so we just want to escape for a little bit and experience some warm weather. So we decided that we'd go back to Palm Cove. Really, I've, I've got that one goal and the goal is to get Robin up north for a little while. And I, I bought my board shorts and I... The lady came to help me and she had to send me to the boys' section to get my board short. So I've gone from a 34, 36 waist to um, a 14B, whatever that means. Now it go. Now you go. As I watched Ray push his granddaughter Ivy on a swing in the backyard, I thought back to something he'd mentioned at our first meeting, of how the dying often struggled with existential despair. Later, when it was just the two of us, I asked if he could describe what that felt like. Just, um, I don't know. Despite our conversation and despite everything that Robin does for me and which is exemplary, you know, um, it's still a solo journey. You're still alone while you're doing it and you can't, even though I know that whatever I ask Robin, she'd do for me or my children or stuff like that, it's still a lonely experience. Five weeks later, in early August, a text arrived from Ray. The sooner we speak, the better, getting syringe driver tonight. We should round things off with one last talk so you can understand how indecent this disease is. Unsure of what to expect, I rang him. When I got through, Ray told me that a few hours earlier, he'd been in a very bad way, delirious and distressed. Because he could no longer swallow, a nurse was called to connect him to a syringe driver that would supply him with medication. I was a bit alarmed at your text. I, could, I wasn't quite sure how to read it, but where were you at five hours ago? Oh, I, I was struggling to talk and, you know, just struggling to, to get by. I had to have people lift me up in the, to, to stand up and I could only walk about 10 metres and I'd fall back down and, you know... So it was all, um, it's been a big mess, really. When I last saw you, you were, you know, your body was degenerating pretty rapidly. Has that continued? Yeah, I'm down to 44 kilos, so it's it's pretty thin on my frame. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they don't look good, Um, but... The way that I've kicked up over the last three hours, um, it's turned, turned me around, really, you know, but I'm still um, way out of the, the deep hole I was in. And even my kids, we've all had a, a tear session today mm-hmm. because we thought that, you know, it's 48 hours at the most because I couldn't do anything for myself. Despite his rapidly deteriorating condition, a few weeks earlier, Ray and Robin had somehow managed to get to Palm Cove. I asked how it had gone. Yeah, well, Palm Cove was a little bit disappointing. It was great seeing our parents, Uh our parents. It was great seeing our friends. (laughs) (laughs) That's the delirium um, again, isn't it? It is the delirium. Um, It was fantastic seeing them. But there was a weekend where all of Australia got their cold snap of weather. Yeah, it was, it was freezing and, you know, I had to watch everything I did and, you know, I had to walk about slowly. And, oh, you know. I just had this picture of you lying in a deck chair somewhere actually soaking up some rays, you know, some Yeah, sun. with a great big pair of white plaster across my nose. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll have to send that picture to you. <laughs> the plaster Ray's referring to was just another sign of his disintegration. At the airport, on his way to catch the plane to Palm Cove, Ray had a fall, one of many. 
This one so bad, it nearly derailed their plans. It all went flat, straight under my nose and my knees. Did you break your nose? Oh, yeah, I've got a little little bow in it, yeah. Uh, I feel it's a little bit too late in life to get it straightened out. Maybe. It wasn't exactly um, a romantic look. A few minutes later, Robin came on the line. Between the delirium and the constant danger of falls, Ray had become increasingly challenging to look after. It sounds like it's been a pretty uh, emotional day. Yeah, yeah, it's been a really big day, yeah. And how are you coping? Oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm coping all right. I just feel like I'm in a bit of a parallel, you know, universe to some degree. Mm-hmm. It's real, but it's not real, you know. Hang on, I've just got to help regulate it. Sure. You um, just had trouble... Um, yeah, um, from sitting to standing. Sure. Do you want me to help you up? Or? Yeah. No, he's all right. He'll okay. just stay put where he is for a minute. God, I'm, I'm tense just listening to this because, uh, you know, the sense that Ray's been falling over so often is very uh, disturbing. Yeah, yeah. It's been, um, did he tell you about the airport? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a good photo of him with, you know, at the airport after they'd patched him up with, you know, yeah. bandages all over his face. It was pretty funny. <laughs> I told her Ray was planning to send me the photo. I also wanted to know how the last 24 hours had affected their thinking. Uh, have you discussed the Nembatal at all or is that kind of out of the conversation now? Yeah, we have discussed it in, uh, quite a bit lately. And, um, yeah, it's still there if he needs it. Is but- that good to know? Yeah, yeah, it is, and prob- probably, I mean, well, when he got confused and had the chest infection, I was quite unwell. I thought, well, that window of opportunity is passed because he wouldn't be able to do it. And now with his swallowing and his oral intake's not very good, so I don't know even if he could keep it down. But, you know, maybe possible, maybe not, but mm. he's just going to see what happens. It's, it's interesting, though, because all these ideas that you have come heading up to this stage, you know, uh, I don't know, it's just different when you're actually in it. You know, like with Ray getting confused, that wasn't something that um, I had considered. I considered his physical demise, but not that mental side. Yeah. No, I was going to say, I just, uh, I really, you know, my thoughts are with you for the days ahead because they're not yeah. easy days. No. No, it's not going to be easy at all. But we'll get through it, I suppose. Everyone does. When Ray came back on the line, I asked what his thoughts were about the Nimbatal. Rob and I decided we were going to keep it here and we'll see how this uh, clinical pathway goes. Mm-hmm. And if the pain or the, the vomiting or whatever got too severe, I, I would still be open to taking it, but if I can control the pain and the other symptoms um, on the palliative care pathway, I'll continue on that as as we can. Mm. Knowing that the yeah. Nembatal is there, what does that mean for you? Oh, yeah, it's still the comfort, you know. If you're having trouble swallowing, which is, I believe, part of the reason you've got the syringe in, is that going to be an issue if you decide... Well, maybe it's time for Nembatal? Well, yeah, well, possibly, because I don't think that um, you could go much lower than 44 kilograms on my frame. But I just got to go with what I feel is the right thing for me and think that's a reasonable stance, you know? Well, that's the whole point, isn't it, about choice? It is, yeah. No, well, that's right. It's all about choice. Yeah, we don't know what's going to hand out the end. We still could have. Something catastrophic happened to me. Are, yeah. you, are you scared? Are you? No, I'm not scared. But like Robin said, we've got, got good children I can talk to, you know. Um, I, mean, I feel like I'm very well supported, you know. Mm. Mm. I've come to the conclusion that you know, it's, it's inevitable. Um, I'm going to go because I'm mindful that you probably need to, you know, just rest up. But. Um... I'm not sure when we'll talk again, but in case we yeah. don't, it's been really good talking with you and uh, my love to you. Yeah, no worries, mate. Thank you. It's been fantastic talking to you as well. 
I'll send you the photo of me at Tullamore Airport. Okay. All right. right. All right. It was uh, good talking to you. Cheers, Andy. Right. Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. Shortly after I hung up, the photo arrived. It shows Ray sitting in a wheelchair, a jaunty hat for the tropics on his head, sticking plaster all over his nose and forehead, and a big smile on his face. Two weeks later, Ray died. He was 59. Well, ain't no grave Gonna hold my body down Ain't no grave Hold my body down 400 people turned up to farewell Velvet Ray. The three kids spoke and some of Ray's beloved blues music filled the room. Gonna hold my body down A fortnight later, I sat down with the family one last time. Robin... As you've gone to those last couple of weeks, what was the thinking about Nimbatel? Um, Well, he got quite acute delirium, which meant that he was quite confused. He came in and out of it. But, um, yeah, and then, you know, we had quite lucid discussions and stuff and he felt that if he was comfortable with palliative care, he was happy to take that approach. He wanted to die at home, wanted to die in his bed. So... um, We did discuss Nebutel and he said, that's my backup plan, but, you know, I'll I'll try and go with the system as it is. And I think probably because of the repercussions, because he wouldn't be here to have to deal with any flack. What was he concerned about? Well, I think he was concerned about the legal ramifications. And um, looking back in hindsight, I just feel that when he was well enough to take the Nebutel, he didn't want to. And I think Ray, as much as he's, he, you know, came across as being prepared, he was prepared, so, you know, mentally, when it actually confronts you and you actually are dying, he, he didn't want to go. So yeah. that it's been interesting. It's hasn't changed my view on, you know, having a choice at the end of life, but it's made me realise it's so complex. Yeah. It's yeah. a hard thing to end it by your own hand. Get that Nebutel out yourself, which is what he would have had to do. Otherwise, we're assisting him. Um, it's hard. It's really hard to do, no matter how mm. you've processed that thought intellectually. It's extremely hard. As you it? said, there's nothing simple about this. Mm. You know, there wouldn't be a more experienced person no. in these matters mm. than Ray. Mm. But there, even for him, there was absolutely no way of knowing how things were going to unfold. Yeah, and things cascaded and... Um, yeah, sort of it was out of his control. He mm. was quite disorientated. And then the day before he went to hospital, yeah. we yeah. sat down and we had to have the conversation with him and we all were there and said, do you realise that you're dying, like that it's you that's dying? Because he thought he just had a chest infection he was going to get better and he said that a few yeah. times. But then, he, yeah, he said something and I was just like, do you know what's happening, Dad? And he just said no. I and told him. I went and got Mum because I was like, oh, I don't want to. <laughs> Yeah. do this, you know, and so, then we're like, do you remember? And he was like, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. It was but difficult I, to say that yeah. to him, to tell I, him he was done. I found yeah. that moment really yeah. hard and I had to keep leaving the room because, mm. you know, for him to say, you've got cancer, you're going to die, mm. you just were trying to make you comfortable mm. and you were saying things like it's okay, it's okay to go to sleep, it's okay yeah. to let go. Like that was really, yeah. you know, the, the reality of that for me was really. He, you know how he used to talk about existential distress? Well, we did get to see mm. a yeah. very classic demonstration of that. And at one stage he, you know how he talked about be, not wanting to be cold? Well, he in the end he couldn't keep his clothes on. <laughs> and the poor kids one day were exposed to him. He pulled everything off and his breathing, he was having, and we were just having trouble getting enough drugs into him and he was wandering around the house and he had to be... <laughs> Rory said I was a ninja. Yeah, <laughs> mum was to get right the in. Drugs. He was walking down the corridor and mum was getting the syringe in. And, <laughs> and I had a dressing gown trying to cover him up and he's like, no. Which yeah. is not, not a, a scenario you could ever have imagined but happening no. in your lives. No, and the last little bit before I went to hospital was the most distressing thing I've ever seen in my mm. life. It's awful. Can you tell me about that? And he woke up at five o'clock in the morning and he just was really agitated and he just kept trying to get up, but he couldn't really walk that he far. Couldn't. He was so short of breath. It was just horrendous, absolutely horrendous. And I was just giving him medication and the kids got up and, um, you know, he was ordered so much and I was giving him double, triple and nothing seemed to work and that's when 
he asked for the Nebutel. Get the Nebutel, you know, get it, that brown bottle up mm. there. And, oh, it was awful. Yeah, so, it was the moment for him. Yeah, he know, was ready. If he wanted to. Was he, was he, do you think he was lucid when he said get the Nebutel? Yeah. He knew yeah, exactly what he meant. Yeah, 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 100%. Because yeah. I had to explain yeah. to him yeah. what, he to that he wouldn't it. be able to drink it and he... Mm. Understood. Because he couldn't swallow. Just get regurgitating and you could get the mouthful of water down, but you have to kind of take it when you're in control. And that's why I think the law, you know, that brings it home about the laws because if we could have given him something intravenous or some by some other form, if it was legal, then we could have relieved that distress. Yeah, even a a syringe driver, which he could control. Yeah, but if it's legal then and you've expressed the wish and all the... Forms are done and whatever. Hopefully, someone else could administer. Is that how it works in? Look, yeah, that's how it yeah. works in Belgium, Netherlands. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, which would have been ideal for Ray. That yeah. would have been the time. Mm. But it was very stressful. Yeah. Mm. Like we were all trying to comfort him. And yeah, it was awful. I had to walk out of the room at one point because it was so hard to see. It was awful. Like I will never forget the look on his face. Never. No. He knew he was dying that morning, yeah. but because he was so short yeah. of breath, I think he was—he yeah. was really distressed. He's like, "I don't want to die in this way. Right, I yeah. don't want to suffocate to yeah. death." I have seen a lot of people die in my career, and he was the most distressed yeah. of anyone I've ever seen. He's like really the, li- the living example of what why yeah. there should yeah. be a law. In some ways, it solidified all our beliefs about why he was fighting. In the end, having tried everything to help him, the decision was made to take Ray to hospital. In an ideal world, yeah. in specialised palliative care, mm. one of the suite of options mm. they offer to somebody like Ray, mm. who is in his last hours, mm. is the option of a peaceful death. Mm. Mm. Yeah. In the end, he basically had terminal sedation, which is they just upped everything to max. He had the biggest dose of morphine they've seen at the hospital. How much... Uh, better do you think it would have been if this was legal and it could have been openly discussed and you no. could have had a G, your GP with you if yeah. need be, that it, it could have been something, yeah. there, there'd be no questions yeah. about would there be police involved afterwards. How much different would that have made the conversation with all of you, do you oh, think? Oh, I think it was so much easier, yeah, yeah. Because mm. I think that was a concern for him because he he would, you know, he would have been gone and if there was any consequences of him taking the Nebutel, then we... The family had to deal with it, not him. I understand it a whole lot more now, Mm. what it means, why we should be talking about it and why we should be advocating for it. I will always look back and think Dad always died with dignity because I remember him in himself and not the way he died, which although will haunt me, but I absolutely understand the point of what it means to die with dignity and how every case is so different. Mm. It's not just a matter of saying that this is a law. It's just about having choice. It's not going to suit everybody, but there are certain circumstances with how people died that are quite awful. And often it, it won't apply to a lot of people, but in circumstances like Dad's, it would have been so comforting for it to have been applied to him. I think the medical system intervened. We intervene at every stage of life, constantly intervening, and it just it's bizarre how we can't do it. And in the end, we gave Ray terminal sedation, you know. They just upped the morphine and it was a dose of morphine, really, mm. in the middle of the night that caused him to die. Ray Godbold wanted to die at home in a dignified manner that he could control and that would spare him and his family the worst of his dying. In the end, he got none of those things. While the knowledge of having an illegal supply of Nembatal did provide him with comfort in his dying months, ultimately it wasn't enough. Had Ray lived in Oregon or the Netherlands or Belgium, their laws for assisted dying would have meant he could have had the best that palliative care could offer, 
with the clear understanding that should the suffering become too much, he would then have had the option of dying peacefully and as he wanted. Instead, because there was no law in Australia to protect him, he had to plan his own death in secret. And when his dying ran out of control, there was no one that Ray and his family could legally turn to to help him in his last wish. Instead of being able to farewell his family, the only option offered Ray was to die in a medically induced coma, the memories of his dying hours leaving those he loved with an indelible scar. Doctors who oppose his sister dying in Australia like to reassure us that there's no need for it because everything can be taken care of by palliative care. But as Ray knew, and as his death tragically shows, that's not always true. None of us know how our own death is going to be. All we know for sure is that it's our own. And because it's our own, what Ray sought, and many others like him, is a choice about how we face it. Not to be told by others that we can only die in ways that satisfy them. If you'd like to know more, head to the episode page at wheelercenter.com slash betteroffdead. In the next episode, FUD, Fear, Uncertainty and Doubt. The three seeds sown by opponents of assisted dying that have been reaping them a rich harvest of political inaction for years. For the first time, we're going to pick apart those little seeds of FUD and reveal the tactics still winning the hearts and minds of Australian politicians today. Twelve angels from the north Twelve angels from the south Twelve angels from the east Twelve angels from the west ooh, ooh. Better Off Dead is produced by Andrew Denton and Bronwyn Reid for Thought Fox and the team from the Wheeler Centre. Visit wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead to hear the series and subscribe and to learn more about the people and ideas from each episode. Angels lighting on your shoulders East and west, north and south